Wow. It just happened again. Kirk had no idea what I was preaching on this morning. And if I could have picked a song to go with this lesson, to introduce it, it would have probably been that one. I would encourage you, both at home and for those of you who are here this morning, if you have the opportunity after you hear this lesson to go back and really focus on the words of that song we just sung, do it and see how this works. I didn't know it was a real cell phone. I still got a flip phone and it looked like one, so. Have you ever wondered if you're truly on the right track with God? As you look around our world today, you see a lot of folks doing a lot of different things, believing a lot of different things, doing a lot of good things, and everybody believes they're on the right track. And sometimes you may look and say, am I really on the right track? Have you ever wondered if you truly know God and are truly known by God, if you are truly known by God to be one of his own, really, really? Have you ever wondered if you've really done the right things? I mean, there's so many different people telling you so many different things to be right with God. Have you ever really stopped and wondered, wow, am I really saved? Have you ever wondered, with so many different teachings and groups, am I really part of, of the right church that God wants me to be part of, and, and, and am I really worshiping him the way he wants? Because everybody believes they are. Have you really ever considered or wondered if in the midst of all of the contradictory religious teachings out there in our world today, have you ever wondered, am I really going to heaven when I die? The one most encouraging, wonderful, awesome, incredible thing that should come to mind every time uh, that we think of that or if we ever start to wonder about some of those things is the fact that in God's word we have right here in the Bible we have the absolute black and white book, chapter, and verse unalterable answer to every one of those questions, don't we? Right here in the Word. It's all right here. Every last bit of it. We have the answers to every one of those questions and so many other questions that are asked in our world today. Truly, right here. Genesis to Revelation. Right here in this book. We have got absolutely everything that we have ever or that we will ever need to stand perfect before God. Is that right? This very book makes that claim. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, all scripture is God-breathed. And it's suitable for everything that we need to stand perfect, some versions say, or complete before God. We have it all. Every bit of it. And it's always, well, at least since I became a Christian, it's always kind of <laughs> been one of the great mysteries to me why so many efforts have been expended over the centuries. Why so many fortunes have been wasted. 
and why so many actual physical as well as eternal lives have been lost simply because people have been seeking to either find answers to those questions outside of the Word of God or they spent all this time and effort and resources and money to deny what the Word of God actually says. Life would be so much simpler. Think of all the wasted, again, fortunes and lives that, that, that's been just thrown away trying to find answers to these questions that are already right here in God's Word. Let me give you a couple examples. Think of NASA. NASA, I don't know how many millions, billions, gazillions of dollars that they've spent on space probes and all that. I don't have anything against NASA, just listen to the point. going to send these space probes out to find out the origin of the universe. Well, the origin of the universe is real simple. In the beginning, God created the heavens, the earth, period. That's pretty simple. It didn't cost me a dime to say that. Another one that's always gotten to me, and I think I've shared these with you before, but it's astounding to me. In 1492, when Columbus sailed the ocean blue, everybody thought the world was flat or it was the predominant thought that the world is flat. You go far enough, Columbus, you're just going to fall right off the edge. 2,000, approximately, 2,200 years prior to that. In Isaiah chapter 40, a text which we talked about at length last week, the, the, the uh, latter part of Isaiah 40, but right there in that same Isaiah 40, written about 2,200 years prior to Columbus sailing the ocean blue, it says in verse 22 of Isaiah 40 that God sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. God had told them two millennia earlier, hey people, the world is round. Amazes me. This fact that God had all the answers written down for us a couple of millennia before we even started asking some of these questions was really once again reconfirmed and hammered home to me this past week. This past week I read an article and it's, I'm going to excerpt it and I don't typically do this but it's worth it I think for the point that I want to make. There was an article that is very timely, very informative, was written by Brother Brad Harrop, many of you know his name, was posted on churchofchristarticles.com and it was entitled Pandemics quarantines, and the Bibles. Anybody read it? Good, it'll be fresh to everybody, I like that. But it drives home this point that God had all the answers to everything we ever needed written down millennia before we started asking the questions, at least centuries. Let me share some of Brother Harib's writing. He began it this way, he said, some months it feels like the protocols change weekly. Go to the hospital, don't go to the hospital. Don't wear masks, wear masks. Quarantine, don't quarantine. Shut down businesses, open up businesses. Back and forth, right? This the seesaw that we're on, right? Listen to the CDC and the World Health Organization, they're health professionals. Don't listen to the CDC and the World Health Organization. They're politicizing this whole thing, right? Back and forth. And this is the way he begins his article. 
Sometimes it feels like this virus has turned us into a dog chasing its tail, going one direction for a while, then swiftly going the other. But, but here's the punchline. What most individuals do not realize is that the majority of solid information that we are getting actually originated in the Bible. Most of the dependable, solid information that we're getting, no matter where you come down on this thing or, or who your, your favorite writer is or what, whatever, most of the solid information was right here in the scriptures and has been for centuries, millennia. He goes on to say, prescriptions like hand washing and quarantining can be traced back to the Old Testament written long before we ever knew that bacteria and viruses even existed. Then he gives this bit of history. I'm kind of a history buff, so I really enjoyed this. So if you're not, please bear with me, accept my apologies, and listen, okay? A bit of history. We look at things like hand washing today as basic, he writes, but it certainly has not always been that way. Consider for a moment the tragic case of Dr. Ignaz Semmelweis. This Austrian obstetrician was deeply troubled. His passion was delivering healthy babies. Many of the women who came to see him were dying. In fact, one out of every six women in delivery beds ended up in the morgue. One out of every six ended up in the morgue. Every morning, Samuel Weiss was faced with the daunting task of performing autopsies on all the pregnant women who had died the day before. Labor fever was killing women in Europe by the thousands. Imagine, doctors performing autopsies and then walking upstairs to perform exams on healthy pregnant women without ever washing their hands. Samuel Weiss had one of those light bulb moments in May of 1847. On that occasion, he stopped the students from performing exams and instructed them to immediately wash their hands. You know, you see those commercials, you know, light bulb, right? In fact, he asked them to wash in heavily chlorinated water. His theory was correct. Three months later, the death rate had fallen from 18% of his students to one, uh, I'm sorry, 18% of his patients to just 1%. Did you get that number? From one out of every six pregnant women dying, that number was reduced to one in 100 by three months of simple hand washing. He then instituted that the students should wash between patients, something that seems very basic today. The death rate continued to fall. It went down to 1% and it continued down. However, instead of celebrating his success, the students and other physicians began to complain. They didn't want to wash that often. They complained that the frequency in washing was chapping their hands. It's a terrible price to pay to save a life, right? Eventually, Samuel Weiss's boss had him demoted and then fired. They threw out the wash pans and the death rates shot back up. One would think that upon seeing death rates spike back up, the physicians would realize their error. However, their pride and arrogance was too strong, and so women continued to die. 
while Samuel Weiss's advice seems trivial today, realize, realize this, that it would be a couple of more decades before men like Louis Pasteur, Joseph Lister, and Robert Koch put into place what would become known as the germ theory for disease. People did not realize that bacteria, back then, they didn't realize that bacteria and viruses could cause disease and death. And yet, thousands of years earlier, we find God's word giving medical advice that we would not understand for hundreds of years to come. Please open your Bibles with me to Numbers, chapter 19. Numbers, chapter 19. Keep in mind this labor fever, for lack of a better term, was in the 1840s in Europe. Thousands of years before that, Moses wrote the first five books of our Bible, the Pentateuch. And look what it says in Numbers 19. Look what God described starting at verse 14. About touching the dead and what must be done after. This is the law when a man dies in a tent. All who come into the tent and all who are in the tent shall be unclean seven days. And every open vessel which has no cover fastened on it is unclean. Whoever in the open field touches one who is slain by a sword or who has died or a bone of a man or a grave shall be unclean seven days. And for an unclean person, they shall take some of the ashes of the heifer burnt for purification from sin and running water. Keep that in mind, running water. Not a pot or a basin of stagnant water, running water shall be put on them in a vessel. We'll come back to that. A clean person shall take hyssop and dip it in the water, sprinkle it on the tent, the vessels, the persons who were there, or on the one who touched a bone, the slain, the dead, or grave. The clean person shall sprinkle the unclean on the third day and the seventh, and on the seventh day he shall purify himself, wash his clothes, and bathe in water, and at evening he shall be clean. Notice what God's word prescribes. When you come in contact with that dead body, there has to be a period thereafter where, where you are considered unclean. There are certain protocols to be followed. Think of how many, just think that, that in Samuelweiss's day, if people had just taken Numbers chapter 19 as he's performing these autopsies and then, and then with no hand washing, they are, they are performing exams on expectant mothers. Just, just, just think, if this protocol had been followed, how many lives would have been saved? Notice that the Bible gives a recipe, Brother Harib says. Notice the Bible gives a recipe for an antibacterial soap. Lye is extracted from the ashes. Verse 17, lye soap, good cleanser. Lye is made from ashes. Or lye is extracted from ashes. God already knew that, so hence the writing. The CDC lists five steps for hand washing today. The first one is to put your hands under running water, not stagnant water, running water, to rinse off any germs that might be present. Did you notice what God said in verse 17 of Exodus? Use what? Running water. Notice how the Bible talks about running water and being sprinkled or showered with a hyssop. Today, now, because of advances in science, today, 
We know that hyssop has antiseptic and antifungal properties. Hyssop contains the antiseptic thymol. We know that today. They didn't know that then. God said, do it this way. They didn't know why. But listen, what's the best thing to do when God says to do something and you don't know why? Do it. Why? Because God said so. That's the only why you need to know. Doesn't matter if it's matters of faith. Doesn't matter what it is. If God says to do something, you don't have to understand why. Just do it because God said it. Do you remember John 13? Remember the disciples at the table that night? Remember, Jesus is going to wash their feet. Peter said, oh no, Lord, you'll never wash my feet. What did Jesus tell him? He said, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me. He tells them that later on they'll understand. He had said to them, what I'm doing now, you don't understand. But later on, you they didn't need to understand. They just needed to do it because he, he was said that they needed to do it. Let me wash your feet. You'll know later. You don't need to know now. Just trust me. And so, although that they did not know that hyssop contains the antiseptic thymol, we do, but they still needed to do it. Notice also, Brother Harab says that the Bible prescribes washing clothes and bathing. So years, centuries, millennia, yeah, before Samuel Weiss made his discovery, and long before the world ever knew what the coronavirus was, God's word had already shown us the importance of washing our hands. God's word also had very specific rules and regulations recorded regarding isolating or quarantining whoever had a contagious disease. God's word tells us that that had to be done to help stop the spread. Centuries, centuries before anybody ever knew why. Before anybody ever knew how it worked or, or why it worked, God said, do this. Those that have contagious diseases, they need to be isolated, quarantined. For example, turn to me in your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 13. Leviticus 13 and 14. Both contain a whole list of things that need to be done with those who had leprosy. We're going to read a little bit of chapter 13. That's it. You can check the rest of it out when you have a chance, if you'd like. Leviticus chapter 13. Isolating, quarantining those with contagious diseases. 13.1. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, When a man has on the skin of his body a swelling, scab, bright spot, and it becomes on the skin of his body like a leprous sore, he'll be brought to Aaron, the priest, or to one of his sons, the priest. The priest will examine the sore on the skin of the body. If the hair on the sore is turned white, the sore appears to be deeper than the skin of his body, it's leprous. The priest shall examine him and pronounce him unclean. If the bright spot is white on the skin of his body and doesn't appear to be deeper than the skin, his hair hasn't turned white, then the priest shall isolate the one who has the sore seven days. The priest will examine him on the seventh day, and indeed, if the sore appears to be as it was, and it hasn't spread on the skin, then the priest shall what? Isolate, quarantine, same idea, him another seven days. Then the priest shall examine him again on the seventh day, and indeed, if the sore is faded, the sore is not spread, the priest shall pronounce him clean. It's only a scab. He shall wash his clothes, be clean. Brother Harab says, we know today that leprosy is a long-term infection caused by microbacterium leprae. 
It is frequently mentioned in God's word, and indeed it is. The word leprosy occurs 28 times in the word of God. Leper or lepers, 22 combined. And those who were found to be sick with this contagious disease were commanded to be isolated. Look at verses 45 and 6 of chapter 13. 45 and 6. Now the leper on whom the sore is, his clothes shall be torn and his head bare. He shall cover his mustache and cry, unclean, unclean, and he shall be unclean. All the days he has the sore, he'll be unclean. He is unclean and he shall dwell alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. You see there the separation, isolation required by those who had it. Brother Harrop continues, in the late 1700s, boy, that wasn't all that long ago when you compare it with the Pentateuch's being written. In the late 1700s, the country of Norway was struggling with a leprosy epidemic of unprecedented magnitude. Entire families and communities found themselves suffering from a very slow and debilitating disease called leprosy. A slow and mutilating death. However, by the end of the, I'm sorry, by the early 1800s, the epidemic was under control. Care to guess what happened? I'll tell you what happened. The people had finally listened to religious leaders who were pointing out the biblical prescription of quarantine for those with leprosy. It was already there. People just needed to listen. In Leviticus 13, Moses gave the prescription of how to identify leprosy and commanded that those infected be isolated. It would not be until 1873, that's only 150 years ago, little under. Yes, I know, my, it was an approximation. Until 1873, when Dr. Armour Hansen identified red bacteria as the causative agent for leprosy. But long before his discovery, God's word had already given advice regarding bacteria and the necessity of medical quarantine as we see in Exodus 13, 14, and also Numbers chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. Has God given us everything we need? It's all there. It's been there for thousands of years. It's all right there in the book. <clears throat> At the same time, he's got one more example here I want to share with you. At the same time, Samuelweiss was trying to clean up labor and delivery floors in Vienna, Edwin Chadwick was trying to prevent cholera and the Black Plague from sweeping across England. Chadwick recognized that many sewers were not draining and were actually cesspools of filth. Chadwick also discovered that the working sewers were discharging sewage into the Thames River upstream from where they were getting their drinking water. In poor neighborhoods, dozens of individuals often also shared the same living quarters without any means of getting rid of human waste. Hence, cholera, the black plague, disease, people are dying. Did you know the centuries before that, God's word pointed out the importance of burying waste? Deuteronomy, turn there, would you please? Deuteronomy 23, just a couple of verses. 
Deuteronomy chapter 23. I realize here it was for maybe a little bit different reason, but at the same time, the prescription is there. Deuteronomy chapter 23, look at verses 12 and 13. Also, you shall have a place outside the camp where you may go out, and you shall have an implement among your equipment. And when you sit down outside, you shall dig with it and turn and cover your refuse. What did God say? Bury it. You see animals, right? Cover and trying to cover what they've done, right? Well, this is what God's word says. Moses instructed the Israelites always to bury human waste. The common course of action in Moses' day and for centuries to follow was to simply dump waste products anywhere. Hence, cholera, the Black Plague, all of those problems. How many lives, how many lives could have been saved if people would have just listened to God? And not just, as we're going to see momentarily, not just physical human lives, earthly lives, but eternal lives. And that's where I'm going with all of this. Momentarily. One would think that Samuel Weiss and Chadwick would have been hailed as medical saviors. Yet they were laughed at and ignored. Listen to this, this is so sad. The, the guy who wanted them to wash hands between autopsies and examinations, that guy who lost his job for that. Samuel Weiss ended up dying in a mental institution after having a breakdown brought about from individuals ridiculing his hand washing theory. Sounds to me like, sounds to me like old preachers who spend a lifetime trying to tell people what to do to be saved and some don't listen, right Steve? And I'm not pointing at him more than I am me, so. Finally, he says, it would only be years later that the wisdom of these two men was fully understood. Likewise, for nearly, here's the punchline. Don't miss this. Everything I've said prior to this has been a big illustration. Here's the punchline. Likewise, for nearly 2,000 years, the Bible has been trying to save men providing a means for redemption. And yet, sadly, people often laugh and ignore the wisdom in God's word about how to be saved. Again, time will prove the folly of ignoring biblical truth, which actually brings me back now they've got the, the, the illustration and the introduction's over. Now we'll get on with the sermon. It brings me back to the main point of the sermon. As I read the beginning of, of Brother Harib's article there, wherein he talked about how today, you know, there's this constantly changing bombardment of information that contradicts the last little bit and more comes in and more piles on and it's different from what the last people said and don't do this. It's like when you go to the doctors, the doctor says, take this. You go to the next doctor and say, oh no, don't take that. That'll kill you, don't do that. Go somewhere else and say, well, if you don't take this, you're gonna, it's just this, this ongoing thing. And as I read about Brother Harib's description of these constantly changing COVID protocols and not knowing whom or what to believe, and how he said what most individuals don't realize is that the majority of solid information we are getting actually originated from the Bible. You know what I thought of? I couldn't help but think of this. 
I couldn't help but think of all the differing religious information there is out there going around. Think about the parallel. You've got these hundreds of, of divided and diametrically opposed doctrines and denominations in today's ever-changing religious world. Today's ever-changing religious world isn't a lot different than the changing stuff on, on COVID. You, you walk into this denomination on this street corner and they'll say that, you know, this is all you got to do to be saved. And, and you walk over here and, and this group over here say, oh, no, no, they don't have it right. You need to do this. And you walk in the third one and say, oh, both those guys have no idea what they're talking about. This is the way you got to do it. And, and on and on. And it's just, it's just this big cycle of, of information that jumps all over and contradicts everything else that everybody's saying. And it's so confusing. It's no wonder that people so frustrated by trying to find the truth with a different man-made denomination on every street corner, as well as new ones it seems like popping up every day. Next time you're out riding, if you're bored, if you're bored, take a little notepad and for 50 miles, Write down the name of every religious institution you go by. Some of those names will blow your mind. But with all of that out there, how can a person, here's the, here, here we go, how can a person know for absolute certain, everybody's convinced that's, that's religious at all, that they're on the right track. Everybody in religion has, has convinced themselves. Are we susceptible to maybe convincing ourselves at times of something that isn't true? Is it possible that we could do that? Yeah, we're human. We're no different than other people in that sense. All human beings have the ability to convince themselves of something that might not be quite true and believe it is. We have that ability. I don't want to put it in as a positive, but we have that trait, that dynamic. So how can we know for sure that we're in the right church? In the eyes of God. Not in the eyes of man, because everybody's in the church believes they are. How can we know? <laughs> we know the answer, don't we? Do we know the answer? It's not what I feel. It's not what I think. The only way I'm going to know the truth is by going back to the divinely inspired, God-breathed, black and white, book, chapter, and verse, unchanging word of the living God. Because God put the answer to that question in the scriptures a long time ago. How can I know if I'm in the right church? Millennia ago, well, one and almost another full one, it's in the book. It's right here with all that other stuff that's buried in here that nobody bothers to check on in some corners. There is one body. Bible. Check it out. If you're hearing this for the first time, check it out. There's one body. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 4. God said so. In Ephesians 1, and 23, he told us that the body is the church. He told us that in other places, but we'll keep it simple. The body is the church. Christ is the head of the body, the church. So if the body is the church, Ephesians 1, and 23, 
And there's one body, Ephesians 4, 4, that means there's, it's pretty simple, one church. That's what the Bible says. Now, it is the one church that he purchased with his own blood, Acts chapter 20 and verse 27. That's the one. It is the one undivided, undenominated church that we see in scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10, no divisions among you. Individual congregations of which in the scriptures are called churches of Christ. Romans chapter 16 and verse 16. Now, I don't say that because I'm a member of the church of Christ. That's not why I say that. I say that because that's what it says right there in Romans 16, 16. I'm not saying it to prove my point. I'm saying it because that's what God said almost 2,000 years ago. You know, as we read with Dr. Samuel Weiss, women were dying because people did not learn and understand the biblical importance of hand washing after touching a dead body. I wonder how many eternal lives are lost today because people don't understand the <coughs> biblical importance of being part of the one church. In Ephesians 4 and verse 5, it says there's one faith. But, but of the thousands and thousands of different faiths out there today and belief systems in our world, how can one know for sure that they're of the right faith? How can they know? There, there's so many different faiths and beliefs and, and all of this. How can you, can you know? Well, the answer is found, once again, in the divinely inspired, God-breathed, black and white, book, chapter, and verse of God's Word. It's been in here for nearly 2,000 years. The answer to the question is it is the faith which once was delivered for all the saints before the end of the first century, Jude 3. The importance of that verse, that little tiny book, cannot be overstated. The faith once delivered for all the saints, Jude 3. That means that by the time Jude wrote that and then Jude died, at the end of the first century, we had the faith once delivered for all the saints of all time in all places already in place. Is that what that means? That means that every other teaching that has come along since Jude wrote that is not part of the faith that was once delivered for all the saints. It's something else. Doesn't it? So when we think about which faith is the right faith, it is that one same singular faith Get your pencils ready for taking notes. Which we see in the Bible that the Apostle Paul preached, Colossians 1 and verse 23. That the Apostle Paul taught, Colossians 2 and verse 7. That the Apostle Paul kept, 2 Timothy 4, 7. And warned us that we must all be unified in Ephesians 4.13 and Philippians 1.27 and never depart from 1 Timothy 4.1 and Romans 16.16 16 and 17 if we ever want to have any chance of going to heaven. Revelation 14 
verses 12 and 13. Can we know which faith is the right faith? Y'all sleep, right? Yes? No. Can we all know which faith is the right faith? But before we get to either one of those, the, 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 the all important, the most important question, the one that's even more important because it must be answered before those other two is this. With all of the different doctrines and all of the different teachings, you can go on the internet, you can, you can watch TV, you can ask people, with all of the doctrines and teachings floating around about salvation. Number one, is it even possible to know for sure whether or not one is truly saved? And number two, if so, how so? Question number one, is it, even po is it possible to really, truly know? Now, now, we've probably got pictures in our mind of somebody that, you know, maybe somebody never set foot in a church building, didn't have anything to do with Jesus, uh, didn't want anything to do with Jesus, lived their lives as pagan as they could. You go to their funeral and preach, talk about how they're in heaven. Probably all been there, right? And so with all of this different teaching, floating around, is it even possible to know for sure? Because you don't believe this person who didn't do anything the Bible says and who totally rejected the Bible went to heaven and yet some will say they did. So is it even possible to know? Now, and if so, how so? In order to answer those two questions, some people will do the same thing that a lot of people have done about finding questions uh, finding answers to their COVID questions. Like mask, no mask, open up, shut down, stay, go, which side should I listen to? You know, a lot of people answer those questions, they'll go to the internet. And if you go to the internet and you look long enough and hard enough, you can find somebody who agrees with what you've already decided to believe, can't you? Sure you can. And as a matter of fact, they probably will even word it for you the way you'd like it worded. And so, you know, that's the way some people might try to answer those questions. Is it even possible to be able to know whether or not I'm saved? And if so, how so? They'll, they'll do that. They'll go to, to the internet or, or some religious teacher and find somebody to agree with them. But, but here's the thing. To those people who even begin to suspect how much longer eternity is than their earthly life. To those people who even begin to understand how much more intense eternity is going to be than these earthly lives are, such ear-tickling tactics will not do. Simply gonna go find somebody who agrees with what I've already decided to accept. That, that's not gonna be good enough for those people who are serious about their salvation. Because they know in the end only the truth will prevail, 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 4. You know where those people are gonna go for the answers? They're gonna go the only place those answers are found, to the book, chapter, and verse, black and white, God-breathed, divinely inspired word of the living God because they realize that that's the only way they can know for sure. And the answer to question number one, can a person really truly know that they are saved, the deafening answer is absolutely 1 John chapter 5, verses 11 through 13. 
which says, and this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Now we know from other passages, you gotta be in Jesus because that's where the life is, is in his son. So you gotta be in his son. But that text continues. He who has the son has life. He who does not have the son of God does not have life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. John said, the whole reason I'm writing to you people is so that you can know that you have eternal life. What was John's gospel written for? So that you might believe in Jesus. The reason the Bible was written for us, John has summed up very beautifully, that, that we can know whether or not we have eternal life. And so the biblical answer to the second part of that question, well, if I can know, then how can I know? Pretty simple, too. By simply studying and obeying and doing what those did in the first century who came to be saved as well. That's pretty simple, isn't it? I'm going to take you to one example. I know most all of you here know this. Not going to Acts 2 as we typically do, but we're going to Acts. Please turn to me to Acts 16. Very familiar story. But for those who might watch this later on and maybe not understand as fully as most of you all here do, let's just take a quick look at this, shall we? Yes, we can know whether or not we're saved. And we can know how to be saved by simply doing what they did, as this is just one case of in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas are put in prison. About midnight, they're singing hymns, psalms, and hymns of praise to God. And all of a sudden, there's this giant earthquake. The doors fly open. That's the beginning of Acts 16. Please begin reading or following along with me in verse 29. Jailer comes rushing in because in those days, if you lost your inmates, your life was forfeit. Acts 16, 29, then he called for light, ran in and fell down, trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Here's the question. We know that we can know whether or not we are. And the way we can know whether or not we are is by whether or not we've done what they did to be saved. And so this man asked the question, what have I got to do to be saved? They said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. This guy's got no clue who Jesus is. That simple statement alone isn't enough. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. What's he to believe? Well, look at the next few verses. Then, because they wanted him to know, they wanted him to know so he could believe, they wanted him to know so that he could believe and be saved, then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in the house. He took him in the same hour of the night, washed their stripes, and immediately he and all his family were baptized. Now, when you go back to Acts 2, we can go look in Acts chapter 8 with Philip and um, the Samaritans, verse 12. We can look at Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8, 26 through 39. All of them are going to be the same pattern, same thing. These people who didn't know Jesus, they heard the gospel. Maybe they heard something about him, but they weren't saved yet. The case with Cornelius in Acts 10. But, but they heard about Jesus. They heard about how he'd come and died for their sins. And they heard that message, the same as in Acts 2, that if, if they wanted to be saved, they had to go through a symbolic death, burial, and resurrection, or, or a death, burial, and resurrection that symbolized his death, burial, and resurrection. They needed to be buried with him in baptism. 
And so 3,000 on the day of Pentecost did, the jailer and his family did, and had their sins washed away. How can I know what to do to be saved? Going back to God's word and doing it exactly the way they did it because God's had this in here for centuries. Now, sure, and I say this largely for those who might see this video a little later on. Sure, despite what God said, despite what he specifically said in Colossians 2 verses 1 through 13, you can go online, you can go to your favorite religious resource and you can find all kinds of people, all kinds of religious people who will completely disagree with and even outright deny what God clearly said in his word. But here's the thing, not one of those people can save you. Not one. Some of these religious resources will claim baptism is a work. Word of God says that it is something that is done through faith in the working of God, Colossians 2.12. There are some of these religious resources that will say baptism has nothing to do with salvation when 1 Peter 3.21 says baptism doth now also save you. Some of these religious resources will say you're saved by faith alone. Works has nothing to do with it when the word of God in James 2.24 says exactly the opposite. Some people will claim and defend that one can be a part of any church, any church, never seen, heard of, or even hinted at in the word of God and be just as acceptable to God as those who are part of the church that his son bled and died for and purchased. Now, to me, that makes no sense. How can I be just acceptable to God if I'm part of a church that it's never seen in the scriptures? It's, it's not the one that it says his son died for and purchased with his own blood. How can it be as valuable as that? Plain old common sense. In John 8, 30, and 30 through 32, it says, as he spoke these words, many believed in him. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed in him, if, conditional, you, people he's talking to and us as well, abide, that's a word that means put down roots, dig in and live there. If you abide in my word, Jesus said, then you are truly my disciples. And if you abide in my word, Jesus said, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. What will the truth set you free from? All of those other contradicting informational things that, were thrown at, that are thrown at us every day, all of those conflicting thoughts and beliefs and doctrines and teachings and, and all of that dog chasing their tail religious stuff that's out there, we can be set free from all of that if we just know what the word says and do it because as we have seen both from earthly life and eternal life, God had the answers to our questions written down many centuries before we ever asked questions. 
and there's no other place. No other place you're going to find the true answers. It's amazing how many millions of earthly and eternal lives could have been saved throughout the centuries if people had only read and studied this book and done what it said. Question for you this morning. Have you done it? If you heard that Jesus is indeed the Son of God and you've, you've heard the gospel and you've believed it and you're willing to, to confess him as Lord, you're willing to repent, turn to God, are you willing to be baptized for the forgiveness of, are you willing to be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins? Now we know there's a lot more to it than that. Once one is initially saved, they need to maintain that salvation they've been given by the grace of God. Maybe, maybe you're here this morning and you need strengthening as a Christian to live a better Christian life. Maybe you're here this morning and you know that you're struggling with something. We're here to help you because that's what Christians do, right church? If we can help you and be of any assistance this morning, being baptized, praying for you, just anything at all that you need, please come to the front as we stand and sing. And if you are watching this later on and you have any questions, please contact us here at the Lord's Church in Shuttle Hills, Oklahoma.